Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Carr tonight and our topic is Living the Tabernacle, Part 2. We talked last time about living the tabernacle. The only part we apparently left out was anything about how you live the tabernacle. So we're hoping to cover some of that this evening. And uh, thank you for your patience, good friends. So what we're talking about is the fact that Jesus says in the New Testament that the whole Old Testament is about him is very intriguing. How could it be about him? There's like thousands, of, there's a cast of thousands of characters in there. How could it only be about one person? And this also leads to the idea that Swedenborg puts forward that it's all about each of us. Like we are that whole story. We have our inner Philistines and our inner children of Israel, our inner high priest, and our inner uh, tabernacle and all that. So all of this is intended to be practical and to serve our spiritual lives. So what, what is that? What could that possibly mean? So we'll try to extract a few life lessons out of this for you this evening. If you're willing to go on that journey with me, let's open with a prayer, shall we, friends? <clears throat> Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we thank you for bringing us together in your name. You are the one God of heaven and earth. We pray for your presence among us tonight, Lord. Open up the pages of your word. Show us your mind, your heart. Amen. Amen. Thank you for coming, everybody. Sending love to those of you who are out online and on the phone and getting the audio. It's a great pleasure to be with you. It feels like a million years since we did this two weeks ago. <laughs> Somehow, a, a lot has happened. All right, the tabernacle. Uh, those of you who saw last week, I had a graphical error in my in my diagram. I had my laver and my altar in the wrong place. I have now edited that. Editing is fun in paper. And so now we've got them the right way around. The altar, even though what the priests had to do when they came into the tabernacle was to go to the laver first and wash, which is what made me think that it was the first thing in there. Actually, the laver is closer to the tent of meeting and the Bible's remarkably consistent about it, that it's always there. When you get to the temple, Later, Solomon's temple, that had all kinds of things. It had like 10 lavers and a giant sea and, and all this. But this is where that portable laver was in the tabernacle and the altar was out here. Um, so to reiterate what I said at the opening, uh, it, it's sort of mind-boggling to think that all of this is a picture of us and all of this is a picture of the Lord, everything that's described. But when you see images, I don't know how you feel, friends, but if you go see a video or look at images online of the tabernacle or in the back of your Bible or wherever you might find them, um, do you feel like, wow, it's kind of an awe-inspiring structure, like it has to mean something. There's so little inside this holy place. You know, there's just the table of showbread with 12 loaves of bread out there. There's just this candlestick or lampstand with the, with the seven burning lamps and this altar of incense. That's it. That's it. And then inside there is the Ark of the Covenant with the two angel guardians hovering over it. And, and uh, there's something so spare about it. But the fact that the rules were so strong about only the priests were allowed to go in here, only the high priest, I'm gesturing to the holy place, 
only the high priest was allowed to go through the veil into the most holy place or what's called the Holy of Holies in the old translations. Uh, people were allowed into the courtyard, but the priests would be the ones who do the sacrifices. And as we'll hear some more about this evening, it was so important that the animals that were sacrificed had to be without blemish. It emphasizes that over and over and over again. The phrase without blemish occurs, I think, 46 times in, in Scripture. That it, it was very important that these were flawless animals. Um, what on earth is that talking about and how might we apply this to our lives? All right, let's talk, first of all, there, there's just three pieces of advice, I would say, that I'll get to in a bit out of this. Uh, let's start with Exodus chapter 26. So in the Old Testament there, the second book in, this is all about the tabernacle in this part of Scripture. And I just want to read a little bit. Uh, let's just think about some measurements for a second here. Uh, 26 verse 15. Now these, what, what we're going to be hearing about, this inner portion the tent of meeting, as sometimes called. Uh, most of what the tabernacle was, was was curtains. You know, a lot of a lot of curtains and veils and so on. But this had a stiff structure. It had boards. And how tall were those boards? Have a look at this. Um, what did I say? Six verse what? Fifteen. Fifteen. Yeah. Let's start there. And for the tabernacle, you shall make the boards of acacia wood. Standing upright. Standing upright. It's kind of straight. You know, you think of sort of boards going this way, but these are going vertically. And how tall are they? Ten cubits shall be the length of a board, and a cubit and a half shall be the width of each board. Mm. Okay, so a cubit is generally about a foot and a half. So that's 15 feet tall. It's, it's a pretty tall structure. You know, it's taller than you. I mean, it's like this ceiling here. Uh, which those of you online can't see, but um, it's, it's a high ceiling, and these boards would be, what, two and a quarter feet wide, right? Um, so these were the boards that, that were made of it. And then uh, have a look in chapter 27 at verse 9. Uh, we'll be reading now about the outside of this. The outside of it was not boards. It was just they had pillars, but it was all curtains all the way around the outside. And how tall was that part? So the main part is 15 feet tall in the center. How tall is that, is that uh, courtyard? What, what hems in that courtyard? Verse 27 verse 9, yeah. You shall also make the court of the tabernacle. For the south side there shall be hangings for the court made of fine woven linen, 100 cubits long for one side. And its twenty pillars and their twenty sockets shall be bronze. The hooks of the pillars and their bands shall be silver. Yeah, so this was a structure that was very portable. You could take it apart. You could put it together. And so it would have this structure in the form of these pillars. But in between, there's just cloth hanging there, which is a little different than the boards of the central area. And skip over, if you will, to um, what I want, verse... Uh, 18. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits, the width 50 throughout, 
and the height five cubits made of fine woven linen and its sockets of bronze. Okay, so five cubits. Oh, so the central area was 10 cubits high, which is 15 feet. This is five cubits on the outside, uh, which is seven and a half feet high. So my point in that is that from the outside, you would still be able to see that there was something in here. It was twice as tall. You see what I mean? You know, generally, if you were, if you were close enough, you'd be able to see, oh, there's a taller area. There's a the central tent within that. But seven and a half feet high, you're not, you're not going to see what's going on in there. I mean, that, that's, that's taller than people generally are. You know, that's a pretty good screen. Like, there, there's this uh, curtain all the way around this thing. It's only a curtain. You know, it's, it's not boards, or, but, but it, it walls off this sacred area. So when they're traveling, they would set this thing up and you set it up and it gets walled off with this, with this curtain that, that protects this particular area. And then you set up the boards of the central structure in here and, and the holy furniture goes in there and so on. All right. So the first point I want to make about this in terms of how to live by the tabernacle. Uh, I'll choose purple for this. I don't know if the camera can see all the way down here, but number one, set up your tent. And what I mean by that, see, there was a time when the children of Israel didn't have the tabernacle. They had been in captivity in Egypt for a long time, and then they got out and they were wandering around in the wilderness. They still didn't have the tabernacle. They had to make it all the way to Mount Sinai before this pattern was revealed to them. And then when it was revealed, they had to give the free offerings of all the materials and they, the people made it and they set it up and then they had the tabernacle. From then on, they always had that there. What is that in our life? Well, you can see, can you not, um, isn't this a picture of just a sacred space? Like, I don't know how you've experienced your life, good friends, but isn't it possible to live a life in this world? I've certainly done it where, where on the, the, the appearance of it in your life, there's no, there's, there's no sacred. There might be something at the middle of it, but it's not anything sacred or whatever. It's a bad habit or, or something. And uh, you don't have a sacred space. You, you don't have anything that's sort of walled off from everything else. With these seven and a half foot curtains, they're pretty high. It's like, no, this is not, this, this, you know, it's a boundary here between the outside and the inside. As I mentioned last time, Swedenborg says that the, this whole thing, one of the things that it represents is heaven. It's a picture of heaven. So it's right here in this world, but it's, but it's walled off. So how do we live by the tabernacle? One thing that would be good for us to do is to just, what I think of this as, is to create some sort of, uh, for lack of a better word, a spiritual practice, something. And I think it doesn't really matter what it is, but some way of trying to connect with the Lord. It might be reading scripture first thing in the morning. It might be last thing in the evening. It might be a couple of times a day. It might be doing some meditation or stretches or whatever it is. But if it's for a sacred purpose, 
you know, you wall, it's a really basic idea, isn't it? Like it's an idea that's in all the traditions that there's something where you say this is, the, uh, yes, all the rest of the madness can go on, but, but this, is, this is a sacred area. And as you learned in a previous Bible study, if you've been watching the last few episodes, uh, the, it, the, we had an episode a few weeks ago called Making the Word Central. And there was that fascinating story to me where the, um, the tabernacle wasn't at the center of the camp. It was off to the side somewhere, you know. And that's the way it is in, in me. Like in my own life, when I look back, I started doing a kind of a spiritual practice. But it was, <laughs> I, I remember the feeling. It was sort of like I try to achieve a state of peace for like seven and a half minutes. That was all the time <laughs> I could sort of carve out. And then the rest of my life is just free-falling madness. But I would try to get that little bit <laughs> to, to be a little peaceful place, you know. And it was interesting that even just doing that dumb, rather, you know, <laughs> faulty uh, effort uh, started to, the, the peace started to sort of bleed out from there into the rest of my life in an interesting, you know, in a way. I had no idea how to get that into the rest of my life. But just to have a little time off of the madness, <laughs> you know, just, just a little time to sort of reflect or pray or picture myself with the Lord or having a conversation or, or whatever form it took. It took m many different forms over the years. Now it's mainly just um, reading scripture and that's when a lot of my preparation for the Bible study happens. It's a precious thing to just set something up. One thing that I want to say about all this is that it kind of it might look static. It sort of looks static in my mind, the tabernacle and then the certain sacrifices. It's as if you're just always doing the same thing, you know, time after time. But this is a very developmental picture. This is a traveling sanctuary. And all those rituals are, are meant to be moving us forward. Like we're, we're doing all this and it's and it's moving us forward it it's taking us to another state and another state so you tear it down from here you set up over there and you and you're moving forward in your spiritual life closer and closer to this holy land so set up your tent just creating some sort of sacred space i found it was interesting that when i would um uh when you move when you when you move your house just like your physical life changes that thing would be the first to go, you know, like it was very hard to set that up again in a new space. Like I could have a great rhythm where I was and do this every day. But then, oh, no, there's chaos. And then I meant to move that. And, oh, I forgot. And I should open this box anyway. And, oh, look at the time. And, you know, and that was it. And it takes a while to just set it up, get into a rhythm where you sort of expect that. Um, something I started years ago uh, was to... Um, I'm not trying to hold myself up as a model of anything, but, but uh, just to share with you, you know, just to try to carve some time, a half an hour, an hour before the rest of the craziness starts, you know, to, to set aside that time. Um, that's been very, very valuable to me, and various interesting things have happened during that time, like it's evolved over time. The tabernacle has moved. So I think just one simple lesson out of the tabernacle is that there used to be a time when there wasn't one, and then that model is given to you and you set that thing up. And it's your free will offering. You know, it's just self-compulsion. It's like nobody else is 
making you do it. Nobody checks up to see whether you did it or did you fall asleep or did you think about the wrong thing. Well, you know, it's just on, on, on an honor system. But you start to try to create something where it's just, this is my moment of trying to lift above time and space, have a little bit of heaven in here, and just uh, look at my life from a different perspective. Go behind that nice high curtain. You can't see outside. You can't see, in, you know, when you're inside, you can't see out. It's your whole world is in that tabernacle. When you're outside, you can't see what's going on in there. Uh, you know, so that's one thing. Set up your tent. All right. Um, <clears throat> another important piece of this, there's a lot of talk in here. I didn't pick out specific passages for you, uh, but there's a lot about the priesthood. The tabernacle, a lot of the instructions about the tabernacle are instructions about the priesthood, what the priesthood should be like, what they wear, how they do what they do, who they should be, all kinds of things. And uh, I've been thinking about this a lot, and it, I, I don't know whether it's been profitable thought, but uh, Swedenborg says... First of all, there were 12 tribes, and it was the tribe of Levi. You know from the numerical show a while ago that, that uh, there were as many as 15 tribes, you know, depending on how you slice it. But uh, of those 12 sons of uh, Israel, Levi was the priesthood. The, the tribe of Levi was the priesthood, and he was the third one born. And uh, Swedenborg explains that Reuben means... Uh, sort of the learning of truth, like when you first start to hear things and you start to take in the, okay, you're, you're learning, you're on a learning curve. And so Reuben, the firstborn, that's about learning. Simeon is about hearing where you start to obey. And then Levi means what Swedenborg calls charity, which is a good word from the, um, you know, old King James and so on. Uh, charity and then Judah means a kind of heavenly love so charity is not all the way necessary, necessarily to love but it's three quarters of the way there and it's charity and it's very interesting you know I don't know the way I, were, I was raised and all the talk about the priesthood it seemed to be all about the truth well it's the truth and you're supposed to teach the truth at least the good of life and all that you know that's all good stuff but but it seemed to be all about truth, 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 truth. The whole thing is about truth. Well, the Old Testament priesthood is all about good works. The, the priesthood is good actions. It's charity. And Swedenborg says some interesting things about charity. So trying to think about what is our, if you are the whole children of Israel, who is your priesthood? Who, who's allowed in here? Who's the part... Who's the special, what's the special part that's set aside that's allowed to go into these heavenly places and perform these sacrifices and so on? What is that part of you? Well, Swedenborg, and one of the things that they need to do was they go in and the first thing they do is they wash at that laver. You know, always when they come in there, there's a washing that goes on. And then they're offering sacrifices out here. And then they go in and here and burn the incense and and put the bread on the table and so on, Keep make sure the lights are, uh, the, the you know, lamps are lit on the lampstand and all that. Who, who is that? I've been thinking about that a lot. Um, 
Swedenborg says a couple of interesting things I want to say about charity, or charity, other words for it. Uh, sometimes the word charity in Swedenborg's writings has to do with things that you do, and sometimes it has to do with things that you feel toward your neighbor. But they're tightly related to each other at any rate. And a charity, Swedenborg says, charity itself, he says, is performing your function in life, justly, honestly, and faithfully to the best of your ability. That's weird. Now, okay, that has something to do with your function. That may or may not relate to your job. You know, people have jobs that they do, but there are also, uh, you know, it's whatever your role is in society. What are other people looking to you for? What do you do? What do you supply? What is that unique thing that you bring? Um, that's your function. And doing that function, justly, honestly, and faithfully, the best of your ability, uh, gosh, people don't think, I mean, there's this whole tradition in Christianity that uh, the holiest thing you could do is quit your job, you know, go up on a mountaintop, meditate, pray all the time. How could your work or the function you perform be your priesthood? How... How could that be? How, how is Levi charity? How, how is that possible? Why would that part be the part that's doing all this stuff for you? What does that mean? See, the priests were the closest to God in a sense, right? I mean, that's obviously what a priesthood is. And um, um, there's that scripture, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Um, the, the Lord, the Lord came down in this world to get things done. Uh, and he is closest to that action. And you know the experience, don't you, friends? Where, where you're just hanging around in your jammies, doing nothing or whatever, eating too much or something. And then someone calls you on the phone and they need something. They're crying and they need something. Well, that's your Levi. Like your Levi takes that call. Your Levi is not in the jammies. Your Levi is not overeating. That's another tribe. But, but your Levi takes that call because somebody needs something. Work is being transmitted. Something's being done for somebody else. That's the most sacred part not even Judah, your heavenly love. The most sacred part is getting it done. It's boots on the ground. The rubber meets the road. Whatever cliches you, you want to use for it. That's, it's fascinating that that is your priesthood. But that's because that's where the Lord, the Lord wants to flow down into us and get some stuff done. And so when we're doing things, that's when he's the closest that's the part of us. Think about it. Think about it in your own life. Isn't it true? Isn't that the part of you that's allowed in, in here into the holy place? You know what I mean? Isn't that the best part of you? In, in a, like you, you may go lowing and complaining like the, like the cows in the Old Testament or something. <laughs> uh, but isn't there something when you're actually doing work, when you're accomplishing something, when you're performing a function, whatever, you might be writing a poem, you know, could, could be designing a skyscraper, whatever it is, but isn't there something heavenly, like you lose all sense of time when, you, when you're really in there, 
or you're, or you're, you're just working at something, you're trying to benefit somebody else. Swedenborg says that it's through this thing, our function, our work, what, whatever, whether that's you're paid for it or not, that thing, your use, is, um, is where you can benefit the most other people. You can have the broadest, most lasting, most powerful effect on others. You could run around, you know, uh, giving meals. I'm not knocking this, but you could give meals to the homeless or whatever every day of your life and not do as much charity, as, as much showing love for others or benefiting them in some good way than you can do through just doing a, a, good, a good job at that thing that you're called to do. And you see how that is so developmental too, isn't it? And the first thing, uh, another quote I want to throw in here from Swedenborg, is that the first of charity, in the old translations, is to shun evils as sins. That's like the priest, priest comes in and they wash. First thing they do is they wash. So charity itself is to perform that function. And the first order of business is to repent, is to lay aside the evils. That, that's the first thing that's got to go. And I got to say, as annoying as, as work and, and functions and helping people or raising kids or whatever it is can be sometimes, um, it does have a purifying and civilizing effect on us, doesn't it? Uh, or it certainly can. Like, don't they say that in terms of the maturity and development and so on, it's when people, you know, get a job and have kids or whatever. This, this is like that's a, that's a, a, a turning point often for people in, their, in the maturity and so on. Uh, there's a purification that happens because you're trying hard, and especially when you fail or when you fall short, you didn't quite do it or you couldn't help that person or the, the design didn't work, the skyscraper fell over, or the, some of those heart-wrenching moments. Um, <laughs> it, it makes you want... <laughs> sorry, I'm in a weird state tonight. But the, um, it makes you want to do better, doesn't it? it, it, it uh, you, you're striving. You're trying to do more. So that's your... That's, that's your priesthood. So number two is to, um, what did I do with my purple here? Consecrate your priesthood. And by that, I know all of this may not show up on the video, but uh, consecrate your priesthood. In other words, Look for that part in yourself, in your heart, in your life, where that work is being done. You remember when Jesus was surrounded by a whole crowd of people and he said, someone touched me. And they said, what are you talking about? You're completely thronged by people. And he said, no, I felt power go out of me. That's what I'm talking about. When you feel something, something was transmitted. You know, sometimes after something's transmitted, you feel quite empty afterward because you don't, you know, like something was transmitted. But, um, but when you feel, when you feel that some work was done, when the work's being done, it's the Lord who's doing it. That's why that's the priesthood. It's the closest part to it. This is, this is the most heavenly state we get into. Uh, it's... You, you may not be in as elevated a state when you're just flipping through the thousands of channels on the TV or something, 
but when you're connecting with somebody, when you're doing something for somebody, caring for someone, thinking of something, creating something new, whatever form it might take, uh, you're, in, you're in heaven. It may not all feel great, but that's a priesthood in you and it's getting, getting some things done, offering some, some things. And, um, and the third point, I guess I'll write it right now, is um, <coughs> offer your best animal. Now, what is that? But it repeats this a lot. Let's look at some scriptures here. Okay, from Exodus, turn to the right, go through Leviticus to Numbers. Let's go to Numbers 29 here. Twenty-nine. Uh, interesting. Let's read verses seven and eight. This catches my eye. On the tenth day of this seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall afflict your souls. You shall not do any work. You shall present a burnt offering to the Lord as a sweet aroma: one young bull, one ram and seven lambs in their first year. Be sure they are without blemish. Yes, be sure they're without blemish. And you look at verse 31 at the end of the previous chapter, saying, be sure they're without blemish. And this, this idea of without blemish, as I say, comes up scores of times in Scripture. It's very important. There are only certain animals that you, you could sacrifice. Don't be bringing your lizard or your rabbit in here or something, you know. It's got to be a goat, sheep, you know, ram, uh, ox. This, the, the very specific things, very specific birds, very specific animals, and they have to be perfect animals. What is that talking about? Why do you have, what, what is that? And so the people, so all around the tabernacle, you have these hundreds of thousands, millions of people all surrounding this in their different tribes, different tribes on this side. And then these people would bring an offering and they'd bring it here and they you know and the offering would be offered on that altar there by the priests uh, what is that talking about I was reflecting a lot about that this week okay let's read some more scriptures to see if we can get a handle on this turn to the right to Deuteronomy chapter 17 verse 1 just a very similar sort of passage to what we just read Deuteronomy 17 Verse 1, you shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God a bull or sheep which has any blemish or defect, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. Yes, it spells it out a little more clearly. It can't, can't have any defect. It's got to be a perfect uh, animal. It can't have any blemish. And uh, so what does that mean? Look at Deuteronomy 32. Hmm, 32. Verses 4 and 5, it's praising the Lord here, but also saying that the people are not doing right. And what do, what do we read here? What about the Lord first? Verse he four. is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Okay, and what about the people in verse 5? 
Righteous and upright is he. Oh, I'm sorry. Verse 5, they sorry. have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation. Oh, they have a blemish. Oh, so this is not just animals. People have blemishes too. All right. Now, turn all the way to the New Testament, if you remember where that is, good friends. And uh, let's go through the four Gospels, through Acts and Romans and First and Second Corinthians, Galatians to Ephesians. Chapter 5 makes a very interesting thing here about Christ and his love for the church. We'll start at 5, verse 25, if you will. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Oh, by the word. Oh, I see. Okay, so the word is something that does this cleansing and sanctifying and washing. And what will happen as a result of that washing by the word? That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Ah, doesn't that give you an idea of what the blemish means? It's kind of strange that it's applied from these animals to the whole church the whole church and and that uh, and it's like a male female thing or whatever and in 527 there that that the lord is able to make us collectively blemish free you know he can he can bring us into that state where we don't have a blemish or a spot or a wrinkle or anything like that so that we would be holy so holy would mean we're living a good life and we don't have that blemish. Swedenborg explains that blemishes mean evils and falsities, a really basic sort of Swedenborg thought, that there are evil desires, there are false thoughts, and those are the blemishes. So, so this applies to human beings. All right, turn to the right and uh, go through, let's say, Hebrews and James. Get to First Peter, if you will. Here's a statement about Jesus himself. So we heard one about the church. 1 Peter 1, verse 19 this is about what Jesus did. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Ah, well, of course. The Lord is the lamb without <coughs> blemish and without spot. He had no sin. He was good. So uh, this is not about a vicarious atonement type of sacrifice, but it was about the goodness that he brought and the transformation that he went through. And I don't know whether you can receive it, good friends, but that word blood there means the same thing as the passage we just read where it talked about washing by the water of the word. It means the divine truth. That's this cleansing and purifying, just like the water in the laver. It's divine truth that cleanses us. And look at 2 Peter. So turn to the right and go to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 12 to 14 that talks about um, bad people. It talks about bad people. But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. Mm. 
and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. Mm. They are spots and blemishes. Oh, they are spots and blemishes. These people are blemishes. They're spots. So like if the whole collective thing is something the Lord wants to make holy and unblemished, then these people, and what are they like? They're living an unrighteous life, right? They're, they're doing and speaking evil, and they are themselves spots and blemishes. Go on. Carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. Okay, and wh wh what are they feeling inside themselves while they do that? Having eyes full of adultery oh. and that cannot cease from sin. That's a bad situation when you can't stop. You know, they cannot cease from sin. Mm. Go on. Enticing, unstable souls. Mm, that's bad. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Yes, we might as well just stop there. But isn't that, yeah, that's one of those sort of chastening passages that it's so these blemishes in these spots, well, it's possible for people to be spots and blemishes. And, and so several of these passages have talked about spots and blemishes in a human context or in the context of the Lord himself, that he was without spot and blemish and uh, explains that the blemishes have to do with evil, like the doing of evil and the speaking of evil things and, and so on uh, that it mentioned there. So what is it to offer your best animal? What is it to offer your Okay. Let's go to Matthew. Is it time? Should we do it? Let's go to Matthew, uh, which is the first of the Gospels. So go to the left. Go to Matthew chapter 4. I want to read something that seems on the surface to have absolutely nothing to do with the tabernacle. But this will be a little platform for saying a few things here. Um, okay, let's start in 4 verse 17. That's the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Right there. And look how it starts. Hmm, interesting. I wonder how that starts. Matthew 4, 17. Hmm. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, everybody, repent. repent. Thank you. Friends. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mm, I love that. <laughs> Go on. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Oh, they were fishermen. Okay. Then he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Huh. And what do they do? They immediately left their nets and followed him. Okay. I want to think about this a little bit because I actually think what those guys just did there. What do they do? What are they doing? They're fishing. Why are they fishing? Well, it turns out they're fishermen. That's what they do, right? This is their profession. This is their Levi, their, their priesthood. It's like the best part of themselves, right? They're doing their profession. They're casting their net into the sea because they're fishermen. And what did the Lord say to them? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He didn't say, give up that fishing thing. I've got a better idea for you. He said, I want to change the platform. I want to change the type of fishing you do. I want to change the catch, what, what you're going for. 
and he made them fishers of men, and they straightway left their nets and followed him. I was thinking a lot about Emanuel Swedenborg in preparing this Bible study, and I don't know how much you know about Swedenborg. Born in 1688, died in 1772. Sweden, like the country, B-O-R-G. And uh, Swedenborg, he even, in uh, Soul Body Interaction number 20, I believe it is, he says, he likens himself to this story that he was a fisherman and the Lord called him to something else. He compares himself to this very story. And Swedenborg's life is interesting in this regard because he was not a fisherman in any external sense that I know of. Uh, but he, uh, he was a poet, he wrote music, he, he invented things to help the mining industry, he was an engineer, he's a polymath, he knew, knew all kinds of things. And, uh, and he became a well-known uh, scientist and philosopher, and he was publishing on anatomy. Um, he first of all published on minerals and then later on about anatomy. And he got to be pretty famous in Europe. Like his, his, uh, he wrote a Principia, uh, and a big three-folio tomes and, and uh, all about iron and copper and phases of the moon and all sorts of useful things in there and speculation on the nature of cosmology and, and how creation occurred and things like that. And he was very, he was well known. And then I don't think he expected for one second, like up until that point, his life made sense in this world. Of course, the next thing you would write would be this. Yes, that will cement your reputation. And you will dedicate the book to Count so-and-so or the Duke of, you know, whatever it is. And, and uh, that, that's, yes, that makes good sense. You know, and, and you're, you're building your reputation. You're doing some good for the world. And the whole career path makes sense. And then the Lord, um, and, and what I believe was driving Swedenborg was that from an early age, did you know, friends, maybe you've heard this before, one of the first works he wrote when he was like early 20, like 21 or 22 or something, he, he wrote something that no longer survives. We only have the title of it because he wrote to his brother-in-law and said, I wrote something. He listed a whole bunch of things that he'd written. I wrote something called A Method of Analyzing Feelings. 21, 22 years old. I've heard some very compelling arguments that one of the things that drove him all through his life was an interest in psychology before there was such a thing. You know, there was no, I mean, that wasn't a thing yet, you know. But he was very interested in the human mind, how it functions, thoughts and feelings. And so he'd had this, this desire to look at that. And he wanted to understand the world and philosophize about God and the connection with, with creation and everything. And then he wanted to get in the human body because he thought, well, the mind, if the mind is reflected in the body, if we're in the image and likeness of God, surely you could see some things about this. And he was pressing his mind on this. He was planning on publishing a 17-volume series. Just one, one book was going to be 17 volumes long on this subject when it all started to collapse in on him and he started to become awake and aware in a different way in his dreams. And the Lord came into his life. Now, he was a, he was a scientist a philosopher. Yes, he was a religious person. His dad was a bishop and so on. But he, 
He was a layperson. He wasn't a priest or, or, or anything like it. Uh, he would have been so shocked if you could go to him when he was 50 years old and say, five years from now, your primary task is going to be creating your own concordance of the Bible. What? No, surely I'll be dissecting, you know, cadavers or I'll be doing, you know, something related to anatomy or science or something like that. The Bible? Yes, you will be anonymously publishing works explaining the spiritual meaning of the Bible. Oh, by the way, you'll talk to angels every day and you will humiliate yourself by publishing your spiritual experiences all over, you know, all over Europe. You don't have a wrong number or something? You're really talking about me? <laughs> you know, uh, Swedenborg left his nets. He, and he had a big life. He sacrificed the best animal he had. His life, his reputation, everything that he built up, a whole, you know, you work on your life, your career and all that. You know, he'd been working on this thing for a while. And he had a good one and he was famous. He had a reputation. He offered that whole animal. And what does the Lord say? He doesn't say, stop fishing. That's for losers. I got something much better for you. He said, no, I want to make you fishers of people. Where did he take Swedenborg? Swedenborg wasn't expecting this at all. But where did he take him? He took him into an understanding of feelings and thoughts. He took him into the inside of the human body, the soul, what's going on, how the spiritual world connects with this one, everything that's going on, like he's wearing heaven and feeling things in the left side behind the kidney. And, you know, he's going into this amazing state uh, that was what he wanted, but he never expected. And in a certain way, it was sort of a straight line how he got there. But in another way, it was a big <laughs> left turn. And, uh, and it was not, his last phase was not something the world could understand. It was not something to say, oh yeah, that, that's, a good, that's a good move. That'll solidify your reputation. You know, <laughs> no, you're committing career suicide, you know, writing about theology. You're not even a theologian. What are you doing? And um, he sacrificed, and, and, and these guys were fishermen. They were fishermen, and they were working right when the Lord came along. And he said, follow me. I want to take you. Now, I'm going to take, it, it'll, the way the Lord works, it'll be fishing, but it's died and gone to heaven. You know? I'm going to take you into a deeper level of fishing, and we'll see what this is like. The reason Swedenborg aligns this story with himself is that he says that fishing has to do with learning earthly knowledge. That's what fish correspond to. <coughs> he was a scholar. He was learning... It, some, you know, he was a renaissance man. They, they, some, some people say he had tied for the third highest IQ of all time or something, three-way tie. And uh, he, he was imbibing all this earthly knowledge. And then the Lord said, I want you to fish for people, fish for human souls. You know, let's, let's go up to the next. Let's put that knowledge to work. Let, let's, let's go up to the next level. So... Uh, I think your best animal, how does that apply in our lives? It, I, I think it behooves us to take a look, you know, to go out at the, 
flock on a bright and sunny day and have, have, have a look at them. What, what have we got? You know, what, what do we have? What are we passionate about? Animals have to do with our things that we love and are passionate about. What do we have? What are we uniquely uh, good at? Or when do we feel most alive? You know, or what are ways where people said, wow, that was great. You know, when you did that, I got, I got something out of that. What's, what's that. what's the best animal that we have? And how would you offer that? How would you take that up here, hand that to the priests, which is this part about, hey, we want to get the most done that we can possibly do. We're all about usefulness. We're about charity. We're about making a difference in the world. And that's who's going to take this to the fire. The fire is an image of the transformation. It becomes heavenly. It says again and again in Scripture that the Lord smelled a sweet aroma like this. It's so sweet to God. Like how sweet is it when a Swedenborg says, okay, sure, I'll cash in my international reputation and I'll follow you wherever you want to go. What are we doing? You know, that's sweet. The Lord, Lord loves it. That, that, that's, that's really great. Um, so it can be hard to identify in ourselves what that thing is and how we would hand that over. The Swedenborg's was a pretty large, obvious, you, you know, that's, that's like a huge transformation. I don't know that all of us have things like that sort of knocking on our door or whatever. Um, but it's interesting to think about, A, this is how I would put it. What is the best thing? What, what's, when are you at? the top of your game what's the most effective thing that you do or when 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 is your soul like singing like you're you're on and how if it isn't already could that be put to use for the lord for the things that you know the lord desires for for there to be a heaven on earth for for the the world to be healed you know um for all these good things to happen. What's that unique thing uh, that you could offer? Uh, that's what I think um, offering your best animal means. And as I say, this is developmental. It's not static. It's not like you just sort of do this once. You keep, you keep doing this. And then the tent moves, and you set it up in another place, and you go through the process again. And this is the, the Lord leading us, leading us into a more and more heavenly condition. So first is just set up your tent, uh, consecrate your priesthood, and that involves repentance. Rep I'll, I'll put repent in there in brackets because I just can't resist writing that word every chance I get. The... Um, <laughs> It's interesting that that's the part of you that repents. Like, you would think the sacrifice might be to offer the worst part of your life. And that's not absent from the picture, but it's very interesting that the sacrifice is something without... It's not the blemish, broken part of you. The Lord's interested in the best. What, what's the best you got? What's the best animal in your flock? That's what I want. Well, no blemish. You know, what, what's, what's that purest thing you've got? And are you willing? You don't have to. It's a free will offering. But if you want to be part of this thing that we're doing here, you could, you could offer that and 
see what happens. Another interesting thing, a little uh, detail, apologies if this is gory, if you're a vegetarian or whatever, but the, uh, those animals that were offered on the altar were then, the meat was then eaten by the priests. That was their food. Now, I find that intriguing because can you see how that would feed the doing part of you? You know what I mean? Like if the priesthood is, is the doing part, doesn't that feed your, your doing part? When, you know, isn't that a blessing to you know, lots of protein for, for the doing part of you? I think I just want to say that all of this, you know, what, what we're trying to do is ridiculous in this Bible study uh, tonight, you know, going through you know, like whole books of the Old Testament and then trying to boil them down with a few simple life lessons. There's so many details in there about exactly, you know, what the incense was made up of, which I think of as being your prayers. You offer those twice a day and, and all, you know, what, what are all these different things and how do you apply it to your life? I'm glad we've got eternity to work on this and figure it all out. But I think this is something about how, how to make the Lord at the center of your life. And um, you might think the Lord is interested in, you know, some people have thought he's, he's interested in your contemplation or whatever. Yeah, 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 sure. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah. But it's when you're helping somebody, when you're doing, that's when he, doesn't he show up? Doesn't he prepare a table in the presence of your enemy? Like when, when you're right down there getting it done. Isn't that when the Lord, doesn't he light up? Oh, there's a suffering person. You know, doesn't he just, uh, doesn't he just come to life um, when there's work to be done like that? That's, that's the part that he, he loves the most. So that's, that's our priesthood. And devoting that to the Lord, you know, it's beyond, like, when, you're, when the children of Israel are in Egypt, that's like sort of just, well, I'm doing this for my career, and it seemed like it's going to, well, it's going to get tenure, and then I'll go, you know, whatever. You know, that's the, you know, Egypt. That's the worldly sort of track. But when you go out in the wilderness and you start following this tent around and you're led by this pillar of fire by night and cloud by day, you're following something else. Uh, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. There's kind of a mystery in this where the Lord is leading you forward. Into, you know, it wasn't like you could sort of predict, oh, Swedenborg voted most likely to do his own Bible concordance. You know? uh, no, <laughs> nobody saw that coming. You know? uh, he was very well skilled and able to do that because of all the other scientific stuff he had done, but that was not what he thought his career path was going to involve. Um, and I love it. It just, I'll close with this thought that it just seems like the Lord to me that he would, you know, we had a Bible study a few weeks ago about all these things shall be added to you. Seek the kingdom of God and all these things should be added to you. Isn't it like the Lord to say, I want you to leave your fishing and in exchange, I want to give you more and better fishing. You know, it's, he's, he's, he's not, I don't know how to put it into words. He doesn't make that other thing bad and wrong. It's like the, um, uh, that parable at Luke 15 where he, 
the prodigal son where he goes out to the other brother and wants to invite him in. You know what I mean? He wants to invite your past into this. Like all of that's welcome in here. It can, it can all serve. It can all move forward. But he wants to just take it to the next level. Now, the Lord can only be present in us than in things that are his own. That's what Swedenborg teaches again and again. So this is how the Lord is present with us is in things that come from him, like compassion, insight, uh, repentance. You know, these are things that come from the Lord. So this is a picture of how we connect with the Lord, as we said last time. And I hope I've given you a few intriguing ideas or, you know, set you off pondering about something over these holidays about what, what, what sheep do you have and how could they be deployed to serve the Lord? I know some people feel like, well, I don't have physical strength anymore. Or I can't do this or I lost my eyes. Or, you know, whatever it is. Um, but your use is being who you are. You, it's your heart, your passion, and, uh, and your thoughts. Uh, that's, that's part of your sheep. But it can be hard for us to see. Hard for us to tell, well, what, what's the best thing in me? And other people can sometimes help us figure that out. But so setting up our tent, set, creating a sacred space in our lives, consecrating our priesthood, repentance, and uh, action, doing for others, and then offering our best animal and allowing the Lord to take us to the next level. How does that sound? Does that sound like living by the tabernacle? <laughs> okay, good. All right, thanks, friends. Let's close with a prayer. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we bow our hearts and minds before you. We thank you, Lord, for coming into this world and living this process, going through so much pain and torment seemingly needlessly, just to show us, not for any sin that needed to be remedied in you, but just to show us how it's done and in order to be able to connect with us. You are so present with us, far more than we realize, Lord. Help us in our lives. Thank you for those little sacred moments, wherever they might be. Could be just sitting in the car waiting for five minutes or or wherever we might be shortly before we drift off to sleep. Thank you for your presence in our lives, for that holiness that you bring to us. And thank you for the amazing miracle of sanctifying even the things that we do. Thank you for being present with us when we're doing for others. Amen. Our Father who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done, as in heaven, so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on repenting, friends. The Lord may have something amazing in mind for us. Thank <laughs> you.